All right, guys. Um, now we're going to go with Dr. Hoon, one of our fellows, who will uh, giving us a lecture that she's going to try to present next month. Next week. Next week. So. Okay. So give me a good feedback. No, it's not like it's just um, an open mic. So it's not. Cool. Like oh, at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So hopefully you guys can give me some feedback. Are you able to change your slides before then, or have you already turned in your slides? I can change it. Okay, so if I can, anything, yeah, so I can change. fix okay. it. Sounds good. Um, the only thing that I can't fix is myself. Like I can't shit not change the presenter. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. Can you get your haircut or? I did. Love it. All right, so before uh, when I make this lecture, I gave Mervis the topic is 10 mistakes you and I, I can't afford to miss. And then since times go by, my mistake is kind of get lost. So now I have only six mistakes that you and I shouldn't be missed. Um, let me start with this. When you see a patient in the ED, right? So you see a patient coming in, what would be your most concern? What, what are things that you don't want to happen to your patient? Die, losing arm or legs, dying, or like the patient, I'm sorry? Disability. Disabilities, right? So let's think about that, but just the eye. When you see the patient with the eye complaints, what do you want, what, like what don't you want to see? Vision loss. Vision loss, right? So they want to get blind or even though it's just like impaired vision, but if they cannot function, so that's you don't want to happen to your patient. And another thing that might, you might want to keep in mind is you also don't want to get lawsuit for any loss of vision, right? So today we're going to go over five cases. These five cases are real. The only thing that I made up is the age of the patient. Um, and all the cases has been filed as a lawsuit. And there are also some um, damage or some settled amount of money as well. Okay, let's start. So this is a case number one. Uh, around 25-year-old gentleman came into the ED. He said he was involved in the, in the accident. He was assaulted. He got hit by a stick multiple times in his eye on the left and also got hit in the head. He came in. Um, the emergency physician saw him and saw that he has a laceration over here. He has a laceration over here. So they fixed his cut, fixed this cut. And of course, his eye, the left eye, is swollen shut. So they sent him home with the, you know, follow up with PMD in two or three days. The guy went home. Next day, his girlfriend actually recognized that, oh, honey, your eye is bleeding. You actually literally have blood coming out from your eye. The patient, as smart as he is, didn't pay attention, didn't look into the mirror, and then let it set for about a couple of days more. Four days later, he went to follow up with ophthalmologist as he was recommended by our emergency physician to follow up in three days, right? So fourth day, he went in, ophthalmologist saw him, and, oh, sh you need to have a surgery done. Can you guys guess what the patient has? The patient has lobular globe. So what, do we, what, what are things that we can prevent it to happen, like, what are things we can do to prevent the misdiagnosis, right? Look at the eye, examine the eye. Examine the eye. Good answer. So first it is, sometimes you just, we're just so busy and we just like, 
All right, so I mean, it's probably nothing. The guy got, you know, hit by the stick. What, what's, what's a bigger deal? But if the eye is swollen shut like this, you have to look into the eye. You can either use the technique, you just kind of like um, use the orbital rim as your edge, and then you pull up the lid. So in that way, if the lobster globe, then you're not actually pressed on the eye. Or you can use the eyelid speculum that, you know, I don't know if anyone has LASIK done, but when you have the LASIK done, they actually use the eyelid speculum and then kind of open the eyelids. In that way, it's actually better because you have um, two, free, two free hands to examine to do the slit lamp and do the stain. You usually make the out of paper clips. Yeah? How do you do that? Like the regular? <laughs> okay, so that's our options. Paper clip might work too. And then you can test for the sensation as well. So they didn't CT this guy? This guy did not get CT? No, so the guy, the guy did not get any further evaluation in the emergency room. I think he could have probably seen it on the CT of the face, right? Good, and we'll save, well, okay. I'd be worried he had an overall wall fracture or something. I probably would CT this guy. I've had trouble opening patients' eyes before. Mm -hmm. If they're drunk and their eyes are all big, it's really hard to see, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Cool, and then we'll get to that. We'll get to the CT part as well. So, if you see this, so somehow we manage, let's say that somehow we see this patient, we manage to open his eyes, and his eye look like this. What if I tell you that um, this patient came in and he said, oh, doc, I was just sitting, you know, at the Newport Beach and then just drinking margaritas and then somehow the wind blow <laughs> and then something got into my eye. I suddenly feel like my eye is hurting, I'm tearing, and came to you. Is there anything you should worry about? Are you going to worry about rupture globe? Probably not, right? What I'm trying to get in here is if the patient has the mechanism, let's say the guy, came in and then said, oh yeah, I was working as a construction worker and then I was just banging the metal piece to try to get it in and then suddenly I felt something stuck into my eye. In that case, then you would worry about the rupture globe. So don't forget to ask the patient about the mechanism of injury. <coughs> if it's significant, then you should be worried about the rupture globe. And as emergency physician, right, we all want our life to be simple and we want to see oh if the patient come in like this eye I know it's look nasty but I mean this is a textbook patient right you don't need an MD degree to tell that oh geez this is wrong with something wrong with your eye you have to see the doctor or you don't touch it right so if you have this patient coming in you probably can tell oh this is rupture globe let's do all the stuff that we need to do so let's first let's put the middle shield on Make sure it's protected, right? If you don't have metal shield, what else you can use? Any innovators? Styrofoam cup. cup, okay. Or, I mean, basically anything that you can find that will hard enough to put cover the eye and not press the eye, and then just tape it on. I mean, I think you can rely on the patient if you can tell the patient to just make your hair like this and then cover it and then not touch it. Just tape their hand. <laughs> and tape the hand to the face. Um, and then you should um, so the patient on IV antibiotics, it should be broad-spectrum IV antibiotics to prevent the endoptomitis. You should consider tetanus. And also, one thing though, there's two things that are important is you should consider to um, order the anti-emetic medications. Because if this patient vomit once, then you're kind of done, right? A lot of things will come out through the cut and then you're kind of like, okay. Um, so 
I, I sometimes do prophylactics, give the patient antiemetics, I mean, just in case they will, nauseous, they will throw up. And also, um, keep the patient NPO. And then you call opto. And the other thing is, this is not the patient that you want everyone to go in and examine and move things around. Once you've made this diagnosis, do not change or touch anything because more liquid can leak out and you could risk permanent loss of eyesight by those further exams. Yes. So, I mean, it's a good case for students, but sorry, you can just watch and not touch it. <laughs> what if I say the patient came in, kind of like, eh, I don't know, could be, maybe, maybe not, fracture globe. Then what would you do? Would you do the ultrasound? Bedside ultrasound, we're a big ultrasound fan in the emergency room, right? What about the x-ray? Because if you think that might be some foreign body in there, we can, we can just do the x-ray and then get done with, right? What about the CAT scan, like Christian said? How about MRI? It's a high technology. I mean, we have it available, too. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. So um, the ultrasound is, even though we felt like it's no-no, although in the paper and some of the experts actually said that um, if you don't have anything else available, you might consider to do it in the experienced hand. So now. I leave it to you to define experienced hand of the ultrasound. <laughs> Apparently. Right? So just be careful. And I mean, although we know that when you ultrasound the eye, you shouldn't press on the eye, but it's very, I mean, honestly, when you do it, sometimes we did press on the eye and it's just not going to come out right. Um, the x ray is a good test, it's a good starting test, but although you cannot rule out some of the other foreign body and you really can't tell whether there's any evidence of ruptured globe. MRI, like Dr. Koenig said, that you're probably going to be able to remove, the, remove the foreign body if it's metal in there, right? So the safe way to go is probably the CAT scan. And this is a CAT scan. Can you guys tell which eye is wrong? <laughs> Left eye, right? So this, the sign, this sign called flat tire sign. That means that, you know, you see the, the right eye kind of like the full tire, like the regular one that have air in there, and then this one just got poked somewhere and then it's kind of flat. So this is one of the signs that we, they call for the rupture globe. And um, you will need to um, you will need to, to have the opto consult right away. So my number one mistake is this case that you in order to not miss the rupture globe diagnosis consider CAT scan. If you think the mechanism is right or if you have any difficulty to examine the patient and you think there might be something wrong in there, don't try to be, don't try to save money here. Just, you know, if you think you need it, just do it. And I actually spoke to one of the, um, the ophthalmologist fellow and he actually said the ultrasound is better than the other test because with the ultrasound, I mean, sometimes the, the ophthalmology will say, oh, what about the eye pressure, right? I mean, if you, if you think about rupture globe, the eye pressure should be lower, but it's, it's not necessarily true. Because if the rupture globe happened on the back, it's the, the anterior chamber can be still normal pressure. So the CAT scan would be the only thing that we can rule it out. So we shouldn't do the eye pressure too. Right, yeah. yes. And you shouldn't do the eye pressure if you suspect of rupture globe. Sure, maybe start with just like the fluorescein first, like the sign <laughs> or something, just to see. No. So the, if you suspect of rupture globe, yeah, with the mechanism that might be some cut on the eye, you shouldn't do any drop. You shouldn't give any eye drop to the patient. And the process of doing first and stand, and you don't even know it's going to be more 
pressure to the eye, right? I mean, all the patients that we get, and they said they were working, and then they thought that something went in the eye, you always start with the fluorescent test. It really depends on what the mechanism that you think is significant, whether you think the mechanism is significant or not. If you think it's a high-speed foreign body going to the eye, then you should have a high suspicion for the rupture goal. So for this gentleman with the rupture goal, we learned so far is examine the eye, try to open the eyelids, and then ask for the mechanism, and then do the CT if you're not sure if it's rupture goal. The second case is this patient, he's um, a young gentleman around, I would say, 15 years old, went to see his primary, uh, his family medicine, uh, family physician doctor for a flu-like symptoms. So he went there and then he just said, oh, I kind of have runny nose, my eye is hurting a little bit, I have a low-grade fever, and my face is a little bit swelling. Been for about a couple of days. Um, so the, and he also told his family doctor that, oh, I took over-the-counter medication as well, just, you know, to make the symptoms better. So the family doctor saw him and think that he has a flu. And the swelling here might be from the allergic reaction from the over-the-counter medication. The, that doctor also do something that um, they also sent him, uh, send the blood work. It turned out that the patient has a high white, the leukocytosis. So he sent the patient home with oral antibiotics and then tell the patient that um, to come back in two weeks for the follow-up. The patient went home. A couple of days later, the swelling is not getting any better and the fever is getting worse and uh, the redness is also getting worse. So the patient went to the um, emergency department this time. And then, of course, it's more obvious then they diagnosed him with orbital cellulitis, right? And um, the ophthalmology was consulted. In this case, um, the infection, the guy got to the ophthalmologist pretty late. The infection is already spread to the other eyes, and he actually lost the vitreous from his both eyes. It's been a big lawsuit, um, and I think he settled, the case, the lawsuit was settled at $4.8 million. So, so against the PMD, the primary Against the PMD, and um, yeah, so it's too bad. Um, from these pictures, anyone in the room, okay, from the, the right pictures, wait. Your left pictures. Um, do you think this patient has orbital cellulitis? Anyone in the room think the patient has orbital cellulitis? No? No? It's on your differential. <laughs> How about the patient on your left? Anyone think that he, she has orbital cellulitis? So, the, one, the, the left one is smiling, the right one is cranky. Um, it is very difficult to tell, right? I mean, if you just see the patients, even though you have the whole story, and the patient look like number one or number two, it's still difficult to tell which one has cellulitis, or either none of them have it, or two of the, all of them have it. Um, so, but 
What's the difference between orbital cellulitis and periorbital cellulitis? Why do we need to know? Why we need to differentiate between the two? The treatment is totally different, right? If you think of periorbital cellulitis, which is basically cellulitis around the eye, then you just treat a patient as cellulitis, you give them antibiotics, go home and follow up. But if you think the patient has orbital cellulitis, then you would want to admit them, give them IV antibiotics, right? Because there's a high risk of endoptomitis. And hence this comes the importance of the orbital septum. So this septum here is why we call it preceptal and postceptal. And this septum, this septum here is actually, um, I would like to mention it because it's, it can help us to differentiate the two from the clinical. As you can see that this septum is an extension of periosteum from the frontal bone attached to the tarsal plate. So the infection that happened preceptal, this area, it will not restrict to the attachment here. That means that attachment is around here. So that means preceptal infection actually can go further up here. You can see the swelling, the redness go even more here or around here. But in the orbital cellulitis, it's not 100%, but majority of it, the infection will stop right where it attached, which is you're going to see the redness and the swelling demarcated around here and around the, the lower part like this. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, you might hear some story that they said, oh, the patient has periorbital cellulitis, then you know, just be careful because it can turn into orbital cellulitis. Well, it might be true, but part of it is, if you consider from anatomy, this septum is pretty strong, and it won't, the infection will not get past through it unless there is any injury to the septum. So if the patient have any mechanism that will lead you to think that there's injury and tear the septum, then you need to worry about orbital cellulitis as well. But otherwise, the periorbital cellulitis should not um, exaggerate or should not progress into orbital cellulitis. What is the most common cause of orbital cellulitis? Any taker? Sinusitis. Sinusitis. Ethmoid sinusitis is the most common cause of orbital cellulitis even though it's been detected or it might be under, undetected. Um, so in the little kiddos, <coughs> um, like, I don't know, three-year-old, two-year-olds that come in with redness around the eye, because in adults, we can't always do the extra ocular movement. That's like how we differentiate. Mm -hmm. Right. In kids, we can't do that because they're always crying. Like, mm -hmm. how do you approach those? And I will go, I will go, I have a question. I have a, a slide about the EOM, the extra ocular movement testing as well. Actually, it's the next one. So let's do a bit of a quiz. Show hand for question number one, if you think it's true. So the question one said, on clinical examination, an ophthalmologist can distinguish between early orbital and periorbital peri cellulitis. Who think it's true? It's ophthalmologist. They must know something better. Who think it's false? Or who think none of them is, is maybe true, maybe false? <laughs> so now that's the false part, like, okay, maybe. How about, um, it's actually false. So no one can tell. In the, the key is early orbital cellulitis or periorbital cellulitis. You can't tell. What about uh, number two? As periorbital cellulitis worsens, it becomes an orbital cellulitis. I already said this, right? False. What about number three? 
fever and leukocytosis occur commonly in both orbital and periorbital cellulitis. True? True? How about we think it's false? Mervis? Most of the case, though, because periorbital cellulitis is cellulitis around the eye, and most of the time when we see the patient with leg cellulitis or arm cellulitis, we don't even send the blood work, right? Because it's cellulitis. But orbital cellulitis is more involved inside the eye, and it's caused more reaction, and they tend to have fever, they tend to have leukocytosis. What about changes in the density of orbital tissues on the CT are seen in orbital but not periorbital cellulitis? True? Now you guys learn. No one's <laughs> true anymore. False? Yeah, so that is not true. I mean, the, the key here is just, I mean, really, nothing is 100%. And you can see both. You can see the changes of the CAT scan in both disease. What about if number five that Yada was asking? Extraocular muscle palsy and proptosis are helpful in distinguishes early orbital from periorbital cellulitis. Who think it's true? No? What about the textbook that said that you should examine and do the EOM? You think it's true? Who think it's false? Oh, who don't know? I don't know. I'm not sure. None of it? Who is the rest? Is there any audience here? <laughs> okay, so this statement is actually false because the extraocular muscle palsies and the proptosis is delay signs of orbital cellulitis. I mean, the fact is, if you, if you see it, then you probably can say, oh, the patient has orbital cellulitis, but you cannot use it to rule it out. So just be careful when someone says, oh, the patient doesn't have, um, you know, um, extra muscle defect, or the patient doesn't have proptosis, then we can rule out the orbital cellulitis. In the early case, you really can't. And the last one is, periorbital cellulitis rarely has an obvious external cause. Is it true? False? You think true? True? False? It's actually false. <laughs> so most of the, not most of the time, but more than half of the case of the periorbital cellulitis, you can, um, they likely, um, what, what should I say? I should say that if the patient has any lesion or scrape or any laceration around the eye and come back with the eye swelling, then it's likely to be periorbital cellulitis. But it doesn't mean that the patient can't have orbital cellulitis, but it's just more likely for the patient to have periorbital cellulitis. So now, come back to these two kids. The picture on the left, your left, who think the patient has orbital cellulitis? How about on the right? Orbital cellulitis? Yeah. So it's a little bit more obvious now, right? Because this is the line I was talking about, the demarcation line. You can see it's kind of like, look, like a circle here. Whereas in this one, I mean, it's swelling is coming down here, even here. She has some lesion over here as well. What I'm trying to say is, oh, I forgot to delete that. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, you really cannot differentiate between orbital and periorbital cellulitis in an early case from solely history and physical exam, right? What about we add some investigation modality in it? CAT scan, yeah, yeah, do CAT scan, why not? 
Um, let's see. Sight, what do you see on this CAT scan? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, some light, it looks like some thickening and some fluid in the uh, medial to the uh, right eye. And there's also sinusitis on that side too. Cool, yeah, so there is some information going on, some stranding, and also there is a subluculation and abscess in this patient. The treatment for abdominal cellulitis is simple, right? IV antibiotics admit the patient. The antibiotics that they normally recommend is cefuroxim and clindamycin. They want it to be broad spectrum. And it takes about 24 hours for antibiotics to work. So if you give the patient antibiotics, don't expect it to, like, the redness to go away right, to, to go away right at the second. It might take about a day. And then after that, you can evaluate whether the, the antibiotic works or not. Um, and the surgery, you might want to get ENT involved um, if there is any sign of abscess, like in this case. Another thing that it's worth to mention is if your patient is immunocompromised, there's a case report for the 59-year-old patient has acute leukemia and post-chemotherapy. Came in in the emergency room with the same complaint, right eye pain, a little bit swelling, um, no fever, and he ended up has abdominal cellulitis with from the fungal infection. So that's one thing, if you have immunocompromised, the symptoms might be very subtle. You just need to be careful and look for it. Question is, what do you do? So then, are you gonna CAT scan everyone? Right, I mean, if the CAT scan is a diagnosis, are you gonna CAT scan everyone? No, so of all that six questions, and if you think the patient probably has periorbital cellulitis, you can give them antibiotics and have them come back and follow up. But you need to make sure they have a good follow up. Or of all that, if you really think the patient has orbital cellulitis, then you can pursue the CAT scan and then get the opto involved. So, what do we learn from this 15-year-old kid with the orbital cellulitis is you really cannot differentiate the, the two diseases from soil history and physical exam. The third case is, um, this is not my grandma, just so you guys know. <laughs> this is a 84-year-old female. Um, she actually had history of acute, um, sorry, chronic glaucoma with uh, cataract on the right eye. She'd been seen by her ophthalmologist. And one day she woke up and then she found out, oh, I can't see from my left eye. So she went to um, see her um, ophthalmologist, who actually examined her and you know, they were thinking, they're sending the CBC, they sent the ESR, and then told her that, come back in two weeks, and then we'll see the result. So, the patient actually went home, and then a week later, showed up in the ED, not for the left eye, but she now complaining of, I can't see from my right eye. But when the physician asked, but can you normally see well from the right eye? No, my right eye is, I have some impaired vision there, but I just can't see it. It's with worsening, right? So what would you do? I mean, how many times in the ED that we see the patient with a stroke, have the right side residual deficit, and then come in and then complaining of worsening right side weakness? And then we're like, eh, it's already zero out of five. How can you get worse than that? So, but in this case, though, and then we can go over it. So this case, the patient came to the emergency room for the second visit, and the, the ER doc sent the um, ESR and CRP. 
and it found that CSR, uh, ESR is 88 and CRP is 1.86, which is high. So the ER doc think, oh, this is probably temporal arthritis. And then consult ophthalmology, give the patient steroids, admit the patient. The patient has biopsy, and sure enough, is temporal arthritis. Unfortunately, with other treatment, she um, still lost her sights of her both eyes because it's either we don't know why, either it's delayed treatment or her disease was just complicated, but she ended up lost her sights. So let's talk a little bit about temporal arthritis, right? Criteria, criteria. In 1990, the rheumatologist people, doctor, came together and then, all right, um, let's develop a criteria for um, temporal arthritis. And this criteria involves these three categories. As you can see, and we all learn and we all remember it, that if the patient aged more than 50 years old, if the headache is new, or if the patient has temporal artery abnormalities, well, at first I'm I'm not quite sure if I understand this correctly, but this is the picture that show a good temporal artery right there. Um, so if the patient have any abnormality, any tenderness over here, or any, if the patient have decreased pulse over here, or if the patient has elevated ASR, ASR more than 50, or if the patient have abnormal arterial biopsy. If the patient have three out of five, then you diagnose the patient with the um, temporal arthritis. And just be careful here because in this criteria, they actually, the artery biopsy is not gold standard. Even though we know, oh, the patient needs biopsy and then, you know, it's gold standard, then we can diagnose them. It's not, it's just one criteria. And there are case reports of the patient that meet the other three criteria and has negative biopsy and then get treated with steroids, and then it get better, and then they mark them as temporal arthritis as well. So the question comes is, that case was also a lawsuit. They sued the uh, ophthalmologist for not sending the CRP to a diagnose of temporal arthritis, and then delay the steroid treatment. Is that true? Do we? Are we using just ESR or CRP or both, or neither of them? So this is a study that done um, in 700-something patients um, enrollment, and 177 of them has positive biopsy for temporal arthritis. And then they look back to see the labs. Sure enough, they found that CRP, I mean, is if you would say it may be a little bit higher sensitivity compared to the ESR, maybe a little bit higher specificity compared to the ESR, and when you compare both, it actually decreased on this study. Another study that done is a retrospective that they look into a, almost 200 patients with a biopsy positive. That one, they found that only one patient with biopsy positive have negative CRP and ESR. So that means of all the patients that are positive, they either have ESR positive or CRP positive or both positive. So in that study, they conclude as ESR and CRP together, either or, um, is actually increased sensitivity of detecting temporal arthritis for about 99%. So it is something that I think we should keep in mind. If you think about it, the patient might have temporal arthritis and you might want to send a CRP and sometimes, even sometimes the CRP is just high and ESR is normal, the, if the clinical seems like it, then you might want to just get opto involved and then start the patient on steroids. 
how do we treat it? Steroids. And everybody keeps saying high dose, high dose steroids. How high is the high dose? Anyone can give me a number? How high? What are we giving? So there it said it's 250 milligram metoprenisone, Q6 hours, that high, um, to start with. And they normally give it for three to five days to see if the symptom resolve. If the symptom resolve or improve, then they can change it to the oral penicillin is one mg per kick per day. And, but if this, the symptom is not responsive to steroid, then that actually is kind of out of our emergency hand, and the opto or the rheumatologist can um, thinking about steroid sparing agents right, like metrotexate. And they also recommend to set a patient on baby aspirin or low-dose aspirin because that helps with the antiplatelet function of it. And um, the low vision therapy is the, the one that actually the eye specialists deal with it. This is all, they have other techniques that they can help the patient to recover their um, vision from, you know, from the impaired vision from the temporal arthritis. So what did this old lady, 84-year-old female, tell us? Maybe you should consider CRP for the temporal arthritis, if you really think it is, right? Okay, so the fourth case, the fourth case is, um, anyone know who this is? This yeah, is a secretary of the United States. She seems like have she seems like she has a lot of headache there. So this fourth case is actually a secretary, but not the of the United States. She's around 45, 50 years old, and um, she came to family medicine, to family doctor, complaining of headache. It's been going on on and off for about a month now. It's, more on, it's always on the right side, and sometimes she has some blur vision, and it comes and goes. And sometimes you feel nauseous as well. So the patient was seen and then was sent home with diagnosis of conjunctivitis because her eye was a little bit red that time. So she had conjunctivitis, and then she sent home, and a week later, she came back to another ED because her symptoms are getting any better. Her headache is worse, and her vision is kind of worse, too. You guys can guess what she has? Did you look through my lecture? <laughs> he said, acute angle closure. <laughs> okay. All right, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about acute glaucoma. This is just anatomy part. On the, on, the right, on the left side, on your left, is the normal eye. And you can see that if you remember from your second year, maybe your first year of anatomy and physiology, that aqueous humor is produced by silly body, and then it's go from the posterior chamber, and then it go right through the iris, and then it's go on into the anterior chamber, and then it's got absorbed by the trabecular meshwork into the Schlem canal. So that was not, on, it's normally supposed to be that way. But on, the, on your right side is the one that has blockage. So anything wrong with all of this organ, not organism, all of this system, all of this apparatus, then can cause the glaucoma. And that means if the lens gets swollen, it can shut it down and causing the closing angle glaucoma. If the, um, if the anterior chamber is happened to be a little bit narrower than supposed to, then you have glaucoma. Or if the if the ciliary body is thinner, so it's not contract that well, then you can have glaucoma. Or any obstruction in 
the out track of the aqueous humor, then obstruction, then you can have the glaucoma as well. Again, if our life is simple like this, right? I mean, anyone can tell something wrong with this eye. The MD probably can tell that this patient has acute glaucoma, right? Yes, 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 over there. This eye has a very, I mean, impressive injection, conjunctival injection, and you can see the cloudy cornea, and you can see mid-dilate pupils. So this is like a textbook acute close-angle glaucoma. How do we treat this? Well, you want to give them some eye drops. You want to give them some pills, maybe some IV medications. And there are two mechanisms to decrease the pressure. One is you decrease the production of the aqueous humor. And the second one is you increase the absorption back, right? So you, you increase the outflow of the aqueous humor. So the tumor beta blocker is actually decreased the production of the aqueous humor together with the um, selective beta-2 agonist, the apraclonidine. And um, the pilocarpine, which is the anticholinitics, actually increase the outflow of the, um, of the aqueous humor. And the rest, the oral acetosolamine and the IV mannitol, you guys know that it decreases the aqueous production as well. What they recommend is, they recommend to give these three eye drops first because it acts faster. You can also give the patient the, um, the fourth agent right away, but it will not act that fast. So you start with the eye drops, and you can give it um, not quite at the same time, maybe five minutes apart, and then, but you can give three different kinds. And of course, you have to get opto involved, right? And of course, you're not diagnosing the patient with acute glaucoma without doing the intraocular pressure measurement. What if the patient come in like this? What if she's just 54 year old female that come into our emergency room and then she just said, oh, I have a headache, this has been going for about a month, and it's kind of nauseous, vomiting once, and I don't really have any eye complaint, doc. And you treat them for the headache, and then you're like, okay, I tried everything on earth, the headache's still there, not getting any better. And um, so you're kind of like, mm, I don't know what's going on. Well, maybe you might want to shake her eyes. Because there are nine, um, there are case series that report the patient has only headache as a presenting symptoms of the glaucoma. Well, most of the case is not detected in the emergency room, but most of the case is taken in a family practice or ophthalmologist. But there's one thing, and it's not a tough thing to do if you, you know, measure, just measure the eye. It only takes like maybe 30 seconds to done. And then if it's positive, then you save the patient a headache, literally. You can just treat them with the acute glaucoma, and then the headache will go away. What, but, I mean, are we doing this for every patient that comes into the emergency room with a headache and nausea and vomiting? Probably not. The study shows that it's, it's happened more in the patient middle-aged, like 50-year-old female, always complaining of one side of headache, maybe have um, occasional... Um, occasional vision lost or blur vision, and also this patient tend to have farsighted. So if you have the patient that kind of fit or, you know, and complaining of intermittent headache, then you might want to consider this if the headache does not go away. And this is what we learned. Headache could be the only sign of the acute glaucoma, and just be careful when you examine the headache patient. All right, the last case is, this is a young female I would say about 30-year-old female that went to her primary care physician complaining of her eye was a little bit 
itchy on the right eye, she had some redness um, for about a day. So she went in there and then she saw her primary care physician. He was good enough. I don't know if you guys can see from this picture actually. I'm a, this is the first thing done. And she actually has abrasion here. It's very thin. Which one is it? Not really. Not helpful. So the fam the um the ER doctor actually pick up that the patient has corneal abrasion. And then, all right, send her home. It's corneal abrasion, right? What do we treat corneal abrasion? Pain control, right? Maybe some eye drop. So this emergency physician decided to give her some eye drop and then patch her eye because it will help with the pain. A couple days later, the patient opened her eye patch and then found that she had pus coming out of her eye. And so she came back to another ED, and then, of course, ophthalmologist was consulted. Well, before that, the ED, the another ED physician actually prescribed her the ANSEF eye drop, and then have them follow up, have the patient follow up with the ophthalmologist in a couple of days, and send her home. So she went to ophthalmologist, and then at that time, it's probably like endophthalmitis, so she had to went through an, um, multiple surgeries. And then she eventually lost her sight on the right eye. Kind of sad story. But what I'm trying to get is, what can we do differently? And this, the lawsuit was made and claimed that had the first EM physician not patch her eye, and had the second EM physician give her a stronger antibiotics eye drop, this wouldn't happen. We'll, and then we'll, we'll debate that at the end, at like another couple slides. But let's talk about the corneal injury. So what's the difference between corneal abrasion and corneal ulcer, besides that treatment is way different, right? Corneal ulcer, we all know, they can go home. Corneal ulcer, I'm sorry, corneal abrasion, we all know they can go home. Corneal ulcer, we should get the ophthalmology involved, and then they're going to need another treatment as well. So... The difference from anatomy standpoint is corneal abrasion is the abrasion is, is the wound that just go right through the epithelium here. Once the wound that cut through the Bowman's layer, then it's considered corneal ulcer. But I mean, how how would I know from the physical exam? Really, from the physical exam, as the book said, you will see it a little bit is deeper for the corneal ulcer. The other thing is though, you should see infiltration. On the on the on the on the, the the wound itself, and sometimes you do see like hypopian, but this in this case you probably think the patient might have endophthalmitis by then. So the first claim said that the first physician shouldn't patch her eye. Is that true? The theory behind the patching eye is believe we believe that it helped the pain. We believe that it helped the it it um is healed faster. Um, so there's been some practice that they said, oh, you should patch the eye for the corneal ulcer or the corneal abrasion. But there's been at least 10 randomized controlled trials on this matter. Just to see, should we patch the eye, not patch the eye, patch the eye, not patch the eye in kids and adults. And all of this study, at least 10 randomized controlled trials actually said that no patching. It's not helping. The, 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 the cornea doesn't heal faster. And... It doesn't help with the pain. They ask the patient, to, they use a visual analog scale for the pain um, evaluation. 
and then the patient didn't report any better with the eye patching. Even worse in kids, the kids that has the eye patch, they actually said that they have some difficulty walking and then they're hitting stuff. So it's kind of sad to patch their eye. So no eye patch, even with cardiac ablation. You can also you can treat the pain with something else as well. And one of the things that I recommend for no eye patch is the patient cannot observe their eye very well too. If you pass them and then they, you know, they listen to that physician like a Bible, they're like, okay, the doctor passed this, I shouldn't touch it. And I mean, a couple of days later, the infections develop and then it's just sad that they didn't know it earlier. And cyclogel should technically give the same effect as the eye patch, right? And mm -hmm. then you can still observe the eye uh, if you give cyclogel. Right. So you can, and, and there are also some study that study about the, um, the end state's eye drop as well. But they were concerned whether it will delay the healing, but there's not really scientific support whether it's, it's delay or not delay at this time. Uh, and then what about antibiotics? Because she sued the second emergency physician that you didn't give me a strong enough antibiotics. Well, if you look at this, this is the culture from, this is actually the study in UK. So they culture the corneal ulcer, and then what they found is, even though the most of the case is coag negative, staph aureus, but there is a good majority of gram negative as well. So ANSEF is actually not quite well cover the corneal ulcer itself. A survey I've done in the community ophthalmologist, they, they surveyed the community ophthalmologist and the, um, the eye specialist that what would they give for the corneal ulcer patient. And more than 80% of those specialists said that, oh, I would give the newer generation of fluoroquinolone, which is right now is fourth generation of fluoroquinolone eye drop. And the less is, I mean, the less than 20% said, I would give fortified antibiotics. And fortified mean is two kind of antibiotics together. So you're not giving just one antibiotics. It could be any combination that they have on the market, but it's different kind. It's not just like cephalosporin two kind. It's different. Um, a different um, group of antibiotics. Um, and then they also have questions whether you should start a patient on steroids because they believe that corneal ulcer is, when it heals, it's actually causing more damage because it's caused scar on the cornea. Should we start the patient on steroid earlier? Well, unfortunately, this is too early to tell because there is no research support that neither, neither steroid should be given or not. And we already know, no eye patch. So, my last mistake is consider big gun antibiotics for the corneal ulcer. That's for when they're infected, right? Not for any corneal ulcer. I would give abrasion. not for the corneal abrasion. Just the ulcer. But I would give it for the corneal ulcer. And if the corneal ulcer, I would give ophthalmology involved. I don't know if any will do differently. All right, so. What we learned so far, for the, for what we learned from this guy with the, the young guy got hit with a stick, remember? The guy with a larger globe, what should we do? Examine the eye. CT. Good, both. I mean, examine the eye, CT. What about this young boy, 15 years old, that went to his family practice and then found that he has flu and allergic reaction, and up he has orbital cellulitis? What did we learn? <laughs> that's good too. <laughs> that's good true. What you learn that's great. So um, yeah, you really cannot differentiate solely from H and P. What about the eighty-four-year-old female that we just talked about that um, came in with the um, 
has a you remember the chronic glaucoma thing and then lost her vision and then the sinus ESR and so you should consider CRP in the temporal arthritis, right? What about the fourth one? The patient secretary with um, headache and nausea vomiting. Wow. He's a good test taker. He should score like 99% on the insulin exam. look forward to that. What about the last one? The young girl, 30 years old, with the corneal abrasion and then turning into corneal ulcer? No eye patch and? Big gut antibiotics. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So if a patient has, you know, given our patient population, if a patient has a corneal ulcer, mm -hmm. like, my guess is like a cefepime eye drop is probably like 300 bucks. Is that an indication to admit them if they cannot afford it? Yeah, if they can't afford it. So in our uh, I don't think you. We would order it and give it to okay. them. And the and pharmacist, you would not tell the pharmacist that you're doing that. I <laughs> got it. But we would get an yeah. opera in our room. All right. Any other questions? No? It was great. I Comments, loved all your audio yeah. visual and everything. The one thing I might change is I really, I don't know if on the title, mm -hmm. I think, I don't think you need I and then I, I think you could just have you yeah, and I. I and just spell out I and then okay. I think that everyone will get that. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. No, that's we'll good. Get that okay. And questions, guys? Ooh. Any other comments, guys? Like anything I should have done differently? You're great. It was. Um, I liked. I liked all the cases and everything like that. Do you think it's too redundant? Because I'm not quite sure. It's kind of not redundant at all. Um, I'm trying to think. Comments. I st I didn't spell. <laughs> okay. Okay. It was funny, like that. Um, there's something that I caught. It's hot in here. Did I speak too fast? Probably speak too fast. No? Maybe you get used to my. Some of your tenses. Sometimes you were saying your tenses wrong. Okay. I love that. So just work on. Then I can, if you want to like give it to me again, or if you want to work with it with me again, I can turn that. You mean on a slide? Yeah. No, like when I'm talking. Sometimes you're using the wrong tense of the verb. Okay. So just work on that and just, and that's just practice. Okay. Yeah. I have to talk more. It's just practicing it. Okay. Um, Comments? Oh, I wrote them all down. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> and then you asked. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you got there. Oh. <laughs> okay. You got a third one? I would. I would talk about maybe the sensitivity of the side to side because that's I mean that's pretty commonly taught for the for yeah. rupture yeah. of the sensitivity of what of the side to side oh okay because yeah that's pretty commonly taught they taught about it but I mean you shouldn't yeah. do it yeah. yeah and you might bring that up like rather than waiting for someone to ask you because that's pretty 